Welcome to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU Community Radio, a program featuring folks in their 20s and 30s from across Maine. I'm your host, Pepin Middlehauser, and I use he, him pronouns. In this show, I hope to provide you with unique perspectives of life from the next generation working to create the future they hope to see. First up in this episode, I was grateful to be able to virtually sit down and talk with two farmers from Franklin while they were taking a midday break. My name is Caitlin Thorell, and I use she, her pronouns when I'm speaking English. And I live here in Franklin, Maine. My name is Jason Chandler. I use he, him pronouns. And I live here in Franklin, Maine as well. I grew up in Phippsburg, Maine. Um, I went to high school in Portland. And um, I've traveled uh, quite a bit and have lived in um, two other places, uh, Armenia uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer for two years and uh, with Caitlin in Ladakh for uh, a year and a half and then another six months. Um, and we're planning to head back there in uh, late October this year and stay for another perhaps two years. Um, and Ladakh is the northernmost tip of India and it's deep in the Himalayas. Um, I grew up over in New Hampshire. Um, I moved to Maine when I started apprenticing on farms. I was really uh, very grateful for MOFCA and the opportunities, the network of opportunities that they offered. And that was what brought me here initially. Um, and then I ended up transferring schools. I was at school um, at Brown down in Providence and then transferred up to COA and got to spend a few years living on Mount Desert Island, which was a really amazing opportunity. Um, and after that found work in Wiscasset and uh, yeah, have been here, have been here since then. And I think that in part, what keeps me here is just love for this landscape. It's um, it's very similar world to the place that I grew up, you know, granite bedrock and uh, lakes and deciduous forests and, um, mm -hmm. you know, spruce and fir. And, um, and also I think that there's, I don't know, I feel, uh, I feel a particular weight of of connection to this place my the ancestors that I know about the ancestors on my mom's side are sort of early colonizers here in Wabanaki territory and so to continue to live here is an and to love this place so much is um is a complex and sort of a central part of of my thinking about my life and how I make sense of what I'm doing yeah my ancestors also have been at least some of them have been uh, over here in in uh, Wabanaki land and in uh, Massachusetts uh, since at least 1625 and from England before that and so likewise um, you know for for both of us um, going and living in Ladakh in a very a way that's very close to the land and just seeing the the beauty and the happiness of people who are really connected with their place um, and then returning to the site of the genocide here where we grew up, we felt really compelled to understand about that history um, and to try to do something about it and live in a way 
uh, as if that history and those ancestors are meaningful. And, you know, not just history, but, but you know, present reality as it, as it plays out in, in this place and in the, the ways of life and livelihood that we all have access to. Um, when I graduated from high school, I had the really fortunate opportunity to travel in, in India for um, about a year, graduated and um, spent the summer working and earning money, waitressing, and then I went over there. And the last month or so that I was in India, I went up to Ladakh really just kind of by fortunate accident. And it really, it was really a powerful thing for me to encounter that way of life and see people in a very grounded community. Um, it's a high altitude desert and folks there grow barley in Western Ladakh where I visited and then later where we, where we went back to live. Um, barley and wheat and apricots and uh, a lot of vegetables, you know, and are able to mostly make their sustenance from the place where they're living. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of really direct physical work. It's really hard work. Um, and it's all, it's, it's very collaborative. Um, you know, communities really rely on each other, sort of have to work together if they're going to make, they're going to make life work there. Um, but it's also very beautiful and really a lot of fun. So I was sort of amazed and didn't really, couldn't really begin to get my bearings in that kind of a land-based livelihood. Like I grew up in a um, a pretty regular household, you know, sort of rural suburbia, as it were, in New Hampshire, um, you know, driving to school and the grocery store and everything. So to live, to see that, um, to see that very closely, I was there for about a month, gave me sort of a pattern language for how I wanted my life to be, but really like no idea how that was gonna, how that could come about. Um, but I came back to the U.S. and uh, transferred school, started learning about farming, um, we just started with this hope that I'd be able to go back there someday and, and be a little bit useful. You know, it was a very, it was a very difficult experience as a teenager being there and being like, wow, I can't, I can't contribute anything meaningful to this situation at all. I, I don't know how to do any of these things that people are doing. So that kind of set us, set, well, set me at that time in a pretty, uh, pretty particular trajectory. Um, and then Jason and I met shortly before I was intending to go back. I had finished school and apprenticed on a lot of farms, a few farms, and uh, worked on a farm for a few years and sort of started to feel ready. Felt like my body had learned how to work, like maybe I could I could do a good thing or at least not be a terrible burden. Uh, and so as I had that intention to return to Ladakh, Jason uh, and I fell in love and we decided to, to travel there together. And I really wanted a companion at that time. And I wanted, I wanted to find people with whom I could make family and create together. And I absolutely love learning new languages and, and travel. And so for a lot of years, I bounced around doing outdoor education and uh, some growing of food, which is pretty much what my parents taught me to do. And then met with Caitlin and went to Ladakh. And really, we went on a journey on the way there. But when we got there, we were there for a year and a half together, living together for the first time. and a lot of our interactions each day were in Ladakhi. And so we learned quick and we were lucky to find amazing people who, uh, who wanted to teach us and welcome us in and, um, and we're grateful for the help and the young labor and the, the joy of getting to know new people and different people and, and singing together and, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. We, um, the village where we found ourselves, where we landed, is a very small village called Par, 
we were looking for a place ideally off the car roads where we could be for at least a whole agricultural cycle and you know really learn about all the different pieces of work and we didn't know how long it would take us to find that place and Tar was the second village that we really visited and it just felt so good to be there and we we received such a such a hearty invitation to stay that we couldn't really imagine going anywhere else so we sort of settled in there and spent a month plowing um, which meant sort of uh, being part of this rotating work party and working with these 13 different families who made made up the village and by the end of that month we were we felt pretty close with everybody you know everybody had really um let us into their homes and shared work and shared language shared we, time shared song you know and gotten up together with the the first light and uh stayed up till 10 each night calling um, manure it was meals you know tea nine times a day <laughs> Um, so after all of that, we, we really were able to feel at home and, and continue on there in that way. So yeah, we love living in Ladakh, but we aren't Ladakhi. And um, yeah, do feel this, this very strong connection to the land that we were born and, um, you know, sort of responsibility here in our communities, our families. Um, and we really wanted to make a home here as well, we wanted to try and find some way to uh, I guess to to ground the things that we were seeing and learning there in Ladakh um, here where systems make a lot less sense in a lot of ways. So we came back and did a lot of searching around for a place to be um, and ended up coming into relationship with a group of people out here in Franklin who wanted to to make community, wanted to try and live in, in a good way on a piece of land. And so through collaboration, we were able to, to find this land and we've built a little 15 by 20 straw bale timber frame home. Learned a lot doing that. Mm -hmm. We, um, we built another guest house uh, since then and we've built a root cellar and um, we're lucky enough to move in next to folks with a small sawmill and people who keep chickens and provide as many eggs as we need and across the salt marsh stream from folks with a beautiful garden they've been feeding with compost for a decade or so and who were very welcoming and said come you know you can plow up what you need and you can work with us well uh you can work with us in the garden and we get all our vegetables from over there and caitlin does a lot of that a lot of that work too yeah, so it really is it's a it's very far from self-sufficiency. Um and I think that that is maybe the the root instruction of our time in Ladakh and also our um our adventure living here in Franklin is that none none of it can happen in isolation. Like everything is very much a story of community interdependence. Um which comes with a lot of challenge, you know, a lot of communication, a lot of navigation of different people's needs and wants and ideas and ways and like we have some pretty everyone who lives on this street has their own set of like political views and uh you know ideas about covid about life about what you know work everything you mm -hmm. know everyone's got their own position mm -hmm. and somehow we have to live together um and that's kind of the way it is in Ladakh too like you you just sort of have to live together because you need each other you know mm -hmm. um that's the way that life works i would say that um you know my parents are sort of back to the landers you know built their own funky a-frame house down in Pittsburgh and uh, my mom's a big gardener 
my dad made wooden sea kayaks when I was a kid. So that's always been at home for me. Um, and, and then also, and, and there's a lot of joy in it. I, I would say that like part of why I love this lifestyle is because it's close to the elements. You know, we cook over a fire a lot of the year and we are often in a position where we can hear the wind, hear the birds, collect rainwater, uh, drink, drink spring water and, and touch the earth each day. And there's just so much joy in that. And also I would say that, uh, a bunch of the, the pain that I've felt and, and my family too, about the damage that's being done to the earth is also a reason for choosing this sort of lifestyle. Not that any lifestyle is perfect or better than another really, but that it, it feels like a response that fits with who I am. Yeah, I think um, it's real that we are, we're in this, we're in this together, you know, like we're all facing the conditions of the, of the present time together. And we, we have different locations within it. We're impacted by economic injustice. We're impacted by race. We're impacted by all of these different things um, quite differently, depending on where we're located. Um, but there's not like a pure place to stand. It's not like we're like doing the right thing up on the hill here with our, you know, no running water and our our lack of electricity. We're like part of it. We're part of what humans are doing. Um, and we're just trying to just trying to be responsive best as we can, you know, trying to act in some way that that feels hopeful or like feels honest in in response to to what we see going on. And I think it sort of keeps us calmer <laughs> and sort of helps us out, just the particular people that we are. Um, yeah, none of us do very well living inside of regular houses. <laughs> stresses that a lot of people deal with every day, like sitting in front of a computer, would drive me nuts. And so we're, this works better. <laughs> yeah, we're sort, of, we're sort of better suited to whatever stresses or difficulties we, we find and encounter here than the ones that we might find or encounter in a, in a, different, a different frame of life. When I finished up high school, I was so tired of being in a classroom that I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail and just spent five months out in the woods, which felt like what I needed. It was assumed in my family that you would go to college. Um, and so I had already applied. And the year after that, I, I did go to college. I ended up barely making it uh, and staying for four years, um, including a semester abroad, which was in Northern India and Tibet actually, which of course connects with living in Ladakh uh, 10 years later. But somebody I consider pretty wise once said that, you know, if you're gonna go into the academic institutions, know what you're going in order to get and and go and do it and get it and, and then continue with your life. That seems like a pretty good good way to go. I definitely experienced a lot of strife about not knowing why I was there. And for me, I was um, I was an extremely bookish kid. I was really very focused in school and that was where I was sort of most comfortable and and I uh, felt most able. I sort of I had I always felt myself on that on that trajectory to maybe be in academia, you know, thought maybe I would be a, a teacher, college professor, something like that. And I was intending to go to Brown to study, you know, literature and art and philosophy and 
um, took that year after high school and realized that the path that I wanted to walk was actually quite different. Though, like maybe concerned with the same questions, I realized I wanted to be in a in a more direct relationship with their answers. I guess, <laughs> mm. if there are answers. Um, my mom didn't go to college uh, and she, I really wanted to drop out of Brown. That was what I would have done, I think on my own. And she really encouraged me to go and get a degree. And she said it would, she said it would prove to people that I was educable. And I think that she faced a lot of difficulty in her life because she didn't have a proper degree. And so I listened to her and I, you know, I am glad that I did. I wish that when I had been at COA, I was pretty, I was pretty snarky at that time and felt um, a lot of the weight of my own privilege having access to this education and was really lucky to have like very good scholarship and uh, graduated without or with very little debt and um, just felt like it felt like this vast unfairness that I got to do that thing. Um, and some, you know, judgment about the whole institution and all of that. But really, it was a magical and amazing experience. And I sort of wish I had been um, more appreciative throughout the whole time that I was there of how, how extremely wonderful a thing it was. And, but, you know, by the time I was finishing, I had sort of come around and realized that these were, these were very precious days and years that I got to spend. Um, I was very grateful for them. But it was... I wonder how it would have been if I had sort of followed my inclination at that time, because I had a very strong conviction that like I was not going to learn what I needed to learn in college, um, which is true-ish. Hmm. And also, I was able to learn a lot in that time and to make a lot of relationships that have continued to really help me so much in my life. So I think both things true. College is a wild thing. It's a it's a wild in, invention, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but it is also very precious and especially a place like COA where there is a lot of freedom to sort of follow the path that I created for myself. I feel really lucky that I got to do that thing. Every time I've gone away from Maine and come back, it feels more like home and I feel more sort of love for the place and returning to it. It always feels just a little bit surprising, you know, growing up here and family and friends and relationships here are strong roots for me. And I, I immediately think of the, that first plowing season that we mentioned in Dar and uh, the experience of sort of waking up into consciousness of Ladakhi language and of the community there and the work, you know, that first season where we're plowing, we're, you know, planting, giving water to the fields, peeling willow poles, and then starting to go up into the mountains with the sheep and the goats and a shepherd named uh, Ajang Tunduk and starting to take on those works and experience the the beauty of that place and start to really believe from direct experience that people can be balanced and deeply knowing and deeply skillful in relationship with land. Very powerful. And I think it's really changed both of our hearts and minds and our lives a lot yeah i really i really feel what feel the same you know feel what jason said and i I think about that season a lot it was a really important pivotal moment in exactly that way you know feeling suddenly for the first time in my life sure that there is at least this possibility within humans to to live in a kind of balance you know to live in a kind of sanity with uh with a place and with a community of of other people 
I'm thinking about my own life and the season that we returned to the U.S. after being in Ladakh was one of the most challenging ones that I've experienced. We were really hoping to find a place to land. And for a number of different reasons, things just kept not coming through. We fell in love with two different pieces of land, two different places. Um, and we thought that we were going to be doing that in collaboration with my sister and another really dear friend. And just for for all of the myriad reasons of human life, we we realized that we needed to go in different directions and it wasn't going to work out the way that we wanted it to. And that was so painful. We were we were so sure that it we wanted it to be in this way. And getting the getting the feedback from the world that we that that wasn't what was going to happen was really, really, really hard to face and to, to take in. Um, we felt so lost, so unhinged and lost and mm -hmm. feeling that I remember yeah. very acutely the feeling of just wanting to be home, just wanting to be of a place um, and, and beginning to understand some of the ways that that isn't actually my inheritance, as it were. You know, I, I like Ladakhi people, you, we've asked people, you know, how long their families have been um, in a household, like in a house or on a set of fields and have heard, you know, like a thousand years, 2000, you know, and that's, that's a really different context than we come from as settler people. Um, so, so in contrast to that really difficult year of like learning that lesson in my body that I'm, I'm not actually ever going to be from any place like that in the way that I might dream of it the incredible privilege of being welcomed to be here now on this piece of land mm. for, for at least a time and try and do something good here feels a bit like a miracle every day. I, I don't take it lightly. Um, feels very, very amazing to be here. I think I might tell myself 10 or 15 years ago that things come about in their own time, which is maybe slower than you think they will. And that is all right. <laughs> yeah, it's a long game. This life and, and our whole collective project is a long game. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels urgent and it still feels urgent, but letting it be slow and important rather than urgent is actually a more effective strategy for, for bringing it about. Hmm. I think I would say to myself that a lot of joy and satisfaction is going to come in your life from deeply listening to other people and paying attention to them and also that while you're doing that it's important not to lose track of yourself and keep your own fire burning strong too maybe that would have helped <laughs> <laughs> That was Caitlin Thorell and Jason Chandler. Both are farmers, natural builders, and outdoor educators in Franklin. You're listening to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. Coming up next, I was able to speak with a newer faculty member from College of the Atlantic. I am uh, the not-so-new faculty of literature and writing at College of the Atlantic. Now I'm almost closing down to a year in Maine, and my preferred pronouns are she, her.
Yeah, so uh, too many homes to count at this point. Uh, <laughs> so I was born in uh, Punjab, Jalandhar, um, and I spent 18 years of my life there. But I uh, was pretty sure that I was going to move from my small town, small, not by population, but uh, <laughs> uh, in, you know, how people thought about things. Uh, and so eventually I moved to New Delhi for my undergrad. I spent three years uh, in my undergrad. That's how usually it is. Got, got an English honors degree. And then decided to continue with a master's program, which was another two years. Uh, so Delhi was the second home. Uh, made some amazing lifelong friends there. Came into my own. You know, the sense of independence that you get, it all came from there. A little bit of confidence boost came from there too, because I was doing well in academia. And uh it seemed like the natural progression to go ahead and try for a PhD because I wasn't tired of the field yet. And uh, I had some connection to um, the topic that I wanted to research, which was partition, because my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, were from the other side of the border. So um, those personal connections coupled with the need to explore more of the world led me to applying to grad school and I ended up in Atlanta. Again, that's the other home that I have. I spent like seven years there and uh, it was a difficult program. PhD is not easy and you realize that once you're away from your family, trying to figure out a new country, new customs, no public transport. <laughs> And of course, you know, the uh, coursework is grueling and then every year is different. But I mean, again, I found like a community that kept me grounded, uh, friends that are still like family. So I survived. I made it through and uh, ended up in Bar Harbor because the job called to me. The description sounded like something that would be meant for me as my friends said to, uh, and it all worked out. One of the things was always about uh, the kind of confidence you have in yourself. And, you know, I grew up being one of those students who was sort of invisible in a class of 50, even though I was doing well um, academically. But every step that I took, I was more and more visible uh, because, you know, in Punjab, things were easier. You were like sort of hidden. Your parents were there to take care of you. Then you moved to Delhi. You need to be part of the class discussion. There's nobody to back you up. So, you know, the professors expect you to have coherent, you know, valuable opinions about things. So even having those opinions and voicing them out was something that, you know, these transitions made easier, basically. And I mean, it it was taken to an extreme in grad school because the classes were three hours long. And if you're not speaking, then it's all silence. <laughs> so uh, that, that whole, you know, getting out of your head and being able to contribute. And 
in some senses not feeling like your opinions common sense or stupid for lack of a better term was something that i had to get used to which i i don't think that i'm still uh used to but it has gotten better over time and of course like i said the other thing that was really helpful was just knowing how to be more independent uh so moving from and it was like a degree of separation with each thing so moving from uh my hometown to delhi i still had some support of family but it was more about navigating at least the college life on my own and making friendships and relationships outside of my comfort zone and then moving to us it you know there was like physical distance from the family and friends there was a time difference figuring out your bank accounts figuring out your visa situation and figuring out where to get indian groceries from you know learning how to cook all of that came with it and then when i moved here it was again a change because this is like my first real job so now you have to think about your retirement account getting a car and i mean again the visa issues continue <laughs> as in a migrant uh but yeah so i would say confidence and independence would be two things that have changed during the process the two teachers would that would generally know me would be my class teacher who is in charge of knowing every student in class but also my english teacher so i always felt like even though i was worried about speaking out i it was easier for me to write down things and literature gave me some space to do that to be able to contribute without worrying about and it, because it's so subjective there's no right answer like there would be in science so i think that was helpful but i wasn't sure about what i was going to do when i started applying for college in english honors was one of the fields that i thought would be very interesting for me i was still learning about uh, other things you know law was another career that i tried to explore but somehow i ended up uh, in an english honors program because my mother didn't want me to go too far from uh, the north and uh, you know i had a good feeling about the program even though a professor almost made me cry while i was filling out my forms and you know the more i spent time in the program the more i realized that i was enjoying it a lot one of the first things that we read in the program was a short story called toba texting by sadat hasan manto which is about partition and it was so visceral and you know so influential that i was in awe of the power of some of those short stories and narratives and I think that's when I started thinking more about my identity it, and that eventually subconsciously contributed to the fact that I wanted to work on partition um but yeah I, undergrad I scored well it was a fun program learned so much and then masters seemed like a foregone conclusion because you know I still wanted to learn more and uh Yeah, I don't think I had thought about what a, being a professor would be like. I just knew that 
what my professors at university did was something that I, you know, the kind of confidence the persona, the interpretations of literature, they always were an attraction for me. Uh, but I didn't know that I'd be, be able to do that. I did aspire to do it at some point. But yeah, getting into the PhD program, again, part of it was getting to explore a new place, a new culture, but also finding mentorship under somebody who would understand my topic and, you know, be interested in it the way I was. And uh, thankfully, I found my advisor who was exactly that. She was a mother in that sort. She pushed me. uh, She scolded me while needed. uh, And she kept me to task. So I'd say that a lot of my teaching style, I try to borrow from her because uh, even when I did not want to speak in class, she would question me and ask, you know, bring out those uh, discussions in. And, you know, I'd made a promise to her that I would contribute to the class discussion at least once. Uh, So whether it was just writing on the whiteboard or you know, saying something out aloud. So I, yeah, so that was something that molded my idea of what a professor should be. And eventually I had realized that the academic life, the kind of academic life I wanted, because there's tenure track, which seemed like a very rigorous and uh, mentally taxing field for me. And having been through the PhD program, I understood not what my limitations were, but what kind of life I wanted. And I did not think that tenure track was going to be the place where I would be the happiest. The pressure of publication constantly on my head was not something that I would have enjoyed. So I was looking for jobs that would help me teach some more. And having experienced teaching in my PhD program, that was something that I enjoyed. So I think those five to seven years that I did uh, in my PhD program helped me narrow down what kind of job I wanted. I'd done some advising during those years as well. So all of that uh, helped me end up where I am. <laughs> right. I think, thankfully, my parents never pushed me to do anything that I did not want. They gently guided me away from like I said the law degree but I think one of the things was that my parents believed that they did not know too much so they wanted me to explore and figure out what things were like when I applied for college at Delhi University uh, I was the first one in my extended family who had some idea who was applying in this you know generation so I didn't even know there's a common admission form that I had to fill up and there was no guidance as such so because I'd somehow managed it on my own my parents had confidence that I could do it they had like some conditions like I initially wanted to go to U.S. for college like during undergrad and they were like no we don't think that you're ready so you have to spend some time outside but like at least where we can help you and supervise you so Delhi was like the option so yeah they didn't ever stop me from anything but they were always aware that you know I don't skip steps so that you know I have 
uh, tools for success. So when I uh, wrote my GRE, uh, sadly, I wasn't good at the corn section. <laughs> and I called my father and he's like, it's fine, you know, this was your first attempt. And again, you know, nobody else had applied for a PhD uh, from my extended family uh, and you know, studied in US. So he's like, you will figure it out. This is your first attempt. First attempt doesn't mean that everything goes well. And, but it did. <laughs> so they had confidence in me. I think the only push that came was uh, about finishing my PhD. But I totally understand that because I did procrastinate a lot with the whole thesis and struggled with it. And my mother still, you know, sometimes brings that up. That you could have, you know, finished it a year or two earlier had you put more uh, time in. And so, yeah, there's like some uh, disconnect there because, you know, procrastination equals lazy in my parents' book. <laughs> but other than that, they've been super supportive and nice about my career choices. What was it like coming from Atlanta to Maine? You know, I heard from a lot of people back in Atlanta that they thought that I wasn't going to make it, <laughs> including my advisor. And she's like, I was so worried you were going to come back and you were going to be like, oh, this is not working out. It's so difficult. But at the same time, the most, uh, you know, she talked to me. And she realized I was like a walking advertisement for COA. <laughs> And she's like, I wish I could have gone, you know, I could have worked at a place like that. So I, even though I mean, I was used to a certain kind of life in the South, which meant a lot of good food, which meant climate that was similar to uh, North India's climate. I was ready to take up this challenge. And I love the community. There is so much support from colleagues, from roommates, right? You, you, know, you taught me how to manage this snow situation. So I never felt like I had to figure things out alone. So that was really helpful. I enjoy how close the community is. Some people like to get together, hang out, which is something that might get missed uh, in a in Atlanta, especially in a PhD setting, because it's a very isolating thing. You're working on your own, on your own material. Yeah, coming to a place where people are more interested in getting together, having conversations, that that was a nice change for me. The weather, yes, it took some getting used to, but it wasn't as bad as I expected, honestly. And yeah, living in Maine. The place is just so pretty. I don't think I've gotten used to how pretty it is. I'm waiting for the fall right now because I remember <laughs> looking at the foliage and, you know, at, at that point I was in a haze because I was still adjusting. I think this is going to be the time where I actually get to enjoy it. So, yeah, it it has been a fun experience overall. I miss the food, but I can always go back and get some. So other other than that, I, I enjoy the place. I love how people are so engaged in the community and, uh, yeah, how pretty the place is. 
one thing that I would go back and tell myself is that you're enough because there are times, especially with the you know PhD program, where everybody's at the top of their game or at least they seem to be, that you feel inadequate and you feel like this is not going to work out. So just uh, persevering and, you know, believing in yourself, I think, is key. Uh, and related to that, the other thing that I would tell myself is to be in therapy <laughs> all throughout because that would help me, you know, keep that perspective. Uh, so I think that mental health has been a key factor in and has to be a key factor in a lot of what we deal with in life. So uh, accepting that, you know, you need some form of not help, but just like a, a routine where you get to reflect on your decisions and be patient with yourself, be nice to yourself. So I, I would definitely do that and save myself some of the trouble. I think it's like a combination of it all. That you should find what you're looking for and it doesn't come easy for everybody. So uh, I go using the process of elimination. I know what I don't want and that helps me get closer to what I want. But also pushing my pushing yourself into thinking how can you be in spaces where you grow even though it's uncomfortable and then yeah keeping some sort of hold on your confidence and uh, getting help and making relationships that push you forward so all of those things are key just keep moving <laughs> That was Dr. Palak Taneja, the faculty in literature and writing at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this is the Next Wave Radio Hour. Coming up next is our featured artist. This month is a local opera singer who just so happens to be my sister. My name is Celeste Middlehauser, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I grew up and still live in Gouldsboro, Maine. I am a opera singer and a computer nerd. I grew up in uh, the middle of the woods, essentially, in down east Maine, on a homestead uh, that was 100% photovoltaic solar powered. I was homeschooled all the way through until I started college. Um, and then I went to college at the University of Southern Maine for vocal performance. And I, I studied opera singing. It was a pretty interesting, uh, unusual process for me, uh, discovering singing and opera as a kid. Um, I really didn't watch hardly any television, but but we watched a lot of movies growing up, and I happened to see the movie A Night at the Opera with the Marx Brothers when I was about seven, and it has some really funny scenes that include um, opera singing, and I was like, wow, that is cool. I want to know more about that, and it led me 
to this lifelong obsession that I have with singing and opera that I just, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really a challenging thing to do, but I just love it and don't seem to be able to, to quit. I would say that I had a pretty non-traditional trajectory as far as, you know, d discovering opera and my, you know, my schooling and everything. And I went to college pretty late um, and I really didn't have a plan for what I wanted to do, what I wanted to study. And I had lived a really quite a sheltered life in in down east maine and didn't necessarily you know my family didn't have a ton of money we didn't have a ton of access to you know infrastructure maybe the way other people had it's really long distances to drive in in my area of maine in order to get to centers of culture or centers of you know even being able to hang out with other people. It's often a lot of travel and time involved. So that was definitely a challenge. You know, as I was really aware when I finally went to college that I, I, you know, some of the other people who were studying music had had a lot of resources that I hadn't necessarily had. They had had, you know, a lot of voice teachers before they even got there, or they'd had um, a lot of opportunities that I wasn't even really aware of were were possible. Um, and, uh, and that was really eye opening to be like, Oh, you know, I'm actually kind of starting from a different place than some of these people. I think for me, there were certainly some challenges to, to being well, there were some challenges. And there was also some some good things about being a non traditional student and coming from a non traditional background. You know, I think it really gave me a lot of awareness and open-mindedness towards many different life experiences and sort of not making assumptions about people. You know, I really have a lot of, you know, I, I feel really aware of just not knowing what other people's lives have been like because I've been on the other end of that, of having people sort of make assumptions about me and what I know or what my life has been like, and, and they're often wrong. Um, uh, but there's also were certainly challenges of, you know, getting getting into college and, and, and really having the challenges of learning to sing and, and realizing that I, I really had a lot of work to do to you know, catch up with some of these other people. And I remember having a really great conversation with a friend of mine in college where they basically pointed this out. They were like, you know, well, how much, how many voice lessons did you actually have before you got here? And I was like, oh, I don't know, a handful. And they were like, well, there you go. You know, these, these other people you're comparing yourself to have had consistent voice lessons for like five to 10 years before they even got here. And that's actually a huge difference and you've got to cut yourself some slack. It's certainly been a, a reality um, that that at, at this point, I'm, you know, I, I really can't make money as a singer, uh, which isn't isn't super surprising. Actually, I think uh, it shouldn't be surprising for most singers. You know, it's a, a, a lot of years of study um, before for most classical singers start getting paid to sing at all. 
Um, and I'm very much in that space right now. So I, uh, I have a day job. I work for Maine Natural History Observatory, um, doing computer work. And then, you know, I, I'm also, you know, an opera singer when I have opportunities to be an opera singer and I'm studying when I, when I can and taking voice lessons when I can. And, and that's, it's, it's a challenge for sure to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure how my life is going to come together between, you know, finding ways to support myself and these two things that I do. Luckily, I really, really love um, the job that I have and, and really hope it continues and don't mind the idea of having sort of like dual career in a sense, you know, of singing as much as I can and also working um, at something that has nothing to do with singing at the same time. Uh, but that's something that I'm I'm still in the process of getting comfortable with, of being being okay with with having having these really separate parts of my life, and uh, and I don't know where it's going to lead. I'm 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 thinking about maybe going back to school, and in all honesty, I don't know if I if I do go back to school, if I would want to go back to continue my music education or to do a totally different major. And, uh, and I don't know. So, so for anyone out there, you know, I'm, I'm turning 30 this year. And for anyone out there who like feels like their life is like up in the air and not coming together the way they expected, you are absolutely not alone. <laughs> I, I'm, at this point, I'm not really expecting my life to start making sense anytime soon. I think it's just gonna gonna continue like this for a bit. <laughs> Uh, when I was in in college, uh, there was a number of of years as I was going going through college of just not a, a lot of things not clicking, a lot of things being difficult, and and the learning curve being really really intense. Um, and I and by the time I graduated, I I really was just starting to feel like like I had a handle on some of some of some of my you know music making abilities. And one of the pieces that really, I think, was key for that by the time I graduated was this aria um, from the opera Ruzalka um, by Dvorak called Song to the Moon. And I, I really think it's a beautiful piece of music. And it also really spoke to me on a personal level, honestly, because um, at that point in the opera, the character Ruzalka, who is a water nymph, you know, she, she grew up in the woods too, essentially. You know, like I felt like I could relate to her in that way of like, you know, being out in nature, having a lot of alone time <laughs> and, uh, so both vocally and emotionally, it felt like a piece that I could really bring myself to in a new way. And that felt really good. Mm -hmm. 
I think that being a classical musician and singer in Maine is really quite challenging. Um, I, I feel really fortunate in the opportunities that I have had, but I know that, you know, when I was in college, you know, a lot of the faculty were regularly traveling out of state for, for other work. Um, you know, they would have, the singers would have regular church gigs, you know, driving back and forth to like New York state, because that's where the work was. And that those opportunities just aren't really available in Maine. And that was something I was very aware of. And, and I've had other singers since then, you know, point that out too, to be like, oh, you should, you know, you know, yeah, where I'm from, you know, everyone has uh, jobs singing in churches. And that's not really a thing in Maine that I have seen. So as I move forward with my career, I am really aware of the pressure to leave Maine and to go where the opportunities are. And and that's a really re real thing. And so I, I definitely think moving forward that that my my journey is going to take me out of Maine, at least for a time, um, to have those opportunities and to get to, you know, you know, network outside the state and stuff that is really kind of crucial if you have a career in classical music. And and I, I think I think that's too bad. You know, Maine is was a, a really nice place to live and a really nice place to grow up for all these years. And it's going to be, it's going to be a bummer to have to leave. I want to give a shout out to Gilbert and Sullivan Society of Maine for being, you know, a, an, an opportunity that I had as a very young kid to watch live theater, classical music, um, in, in Ellsworth, you know, right near where I lived. Um, and I really didn't, you know, it was something I waited for every single year to be able to watch those performances. And it's, you know, community, community theater, but it was, it was classical singing and it really, really spoke to me. And now I have the, the incredible privilege to, to get to perform with them now. Um, and it's just, uh, I don't, I don't think any of those people really, really quite know what it meant to me as a kid to watch those shows and how much, um, how much of an inspiration it was as a sort of young, uh, <laughs> wannabe classical singer, you know, like eight or nine year old, like sort of sitting in the audience being like, this is amazing. And I, you know, I'll never be able to. I don't know if I'll ever be able to to do this, but I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. And now I'm I also I also have the privilege to be able to perform with the Winter Harbor Music Festival, which is a, a newer music festival that's doing really incredible classical music performances and opera um, in Winter Harbor, right near where I live. And it's 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 incredible being able to do that. It's really quite challenging to try to formulate to try to sum up my life because my life has been kind of a roller coaster and kind of a weird journey. And, uh, and I really don't know what the punchline for any of this is going to be.
I think something that I just recently have sort of realized that I think would have helped me a lot if I had known it earlier in my life um, is that the, the challenges that come up in life can be can be really quite intense and they can they can last a long time and they can even last beyond the point where you think you know where you're like okay this is never going to change this is never going to get better this is the way it's going to be for the rest of my life and for me you know that can be like certain challenges I have with singing that can be certain emotional things that I struggle with but I think I think what I've just recently discovered is that those things can actually change but the scale of how long it can sometimes take is is greater than I ever expected it would be but that it's still worth it and you shouldn't you shouldn't give up on that stuff you know may, maybe try to look for other other ways to crack the problem but but it's still worth it and 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 it's worth not just giving up That was Celeste Middlehauser. She is a part-time opera singer and works as the outreach coordinator for the Maine Natural History Observatory. The clip you heard of Celeste singing Song to the Moon was accompanied by Scott Wheatley. The full recording can be found on YouTube. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this has been the Next Wave Radio Hour. I want to give a huge thank you to my guests, Caitlin Thorell, Jason Chandler, Palak Taneja, and Celeste Middlehauser. Thank you to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Our theme music is by Zeke Sakaridis. You can find the archive of this show at weru.org and wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to get in touch, you can email nextwaveradio at weru.org. Next Wave Radio Hour airs on the fourth Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Until next time, stay safe out there. <laughs>